Join me, if you will, in the Gospel of John. We'll be in John chapter 4. As we continue our series through John. John chapter 4. And we'll start in verse 1. Now there is a, uh, a saying that I want you to contemplate, to mull over. A contented man is the most dissatisfied man that lives in the world. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Kind of like military intelligence. Sorry, sorry, intel guys. A contented man is the most dissatisfied man that lives in the world. And that's what we're going to see in our passage. So if you have the Gospel of John open, John chapter 4, we're only going to do part of the woman at the well because I get a little long-winded. And so the more stuff I have, the more I talk about. So John chapter 4 verse 1 begins this way. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. I want to tell you, I just want to keep on reading because it's so rich. But let's pray. Father, your word is truth. When we think about Jesus Christ, my heart is stirred. I seek the living water that comes from him, a fountain that pours forth inside of me. Father, I, I think about the things that I have thirsted for in this world. Money and fame, attention and, and personal success, happiness and comfort. All the, the things that the, the Bible describes as the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, the desires that I have for things that are counter to your will. Lord, we see in this passage, they won't satisfy. Father, I know that there are people in this congregation who have sought things that are not satisfying 
to their souls. Lord, I pray that as we open this passage that we would find the soul-satisfying Jesus Christ and that we would be transformed with this fountain bubbling up with inside, inside of us. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us by your will, that I would be a man that preaches your word and your word alone, not my own opinion. Father, humble us as a people. Lord, I want to lift up the other churches in, our, in the area in Sierra Vista who are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ right now as we speak, that they would preach the truth in love, that it would go forth with power, and that lives would be transformed by the gospel in our community. Lord, we lift these churches and these pastors up. In your name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to go back and tell you that same thing I said. A, a contented man is the most dissatisfied man that lives in the world. All humanity is discontented. I think we can see that a couple summers ago. There was a bunch of riots, wasn't there? It was all over the news. Fire and anger and frustration, pillaging and looting and all of that. Then you add COVID into the mix and people are tired. We're tired of the information that seems to be misinformation. We're tired of the politics playing with our health and our livelihoods. And so we have this discontentment. But this is not a new thing, is it? We have been discontented since we were born. Uh, we have thirsted and hungered for things since we were born. I have a 18-month-old, and he still is thirsty. I've been giving him drinks for his whole life, but he is still thirsty. We have this thirst that never seems to be satisfied. And so as you read through these passages, we see that Jesus approaches different people in different ways. And so he started with Nicodemus, this is the first thing we've talked about in the last few weeks. And with Nicodemus, a very wise man of the world, uh, we would call him the cream of the crop, the most elite, probably gone to the best seminary that ever existed, uh, was well-cultured. And Jesus said, you're not going to get to the kingdom without being born again. And so we see this, even the, the goodest man, we talked about by grammar, the goodest man was not good enough to enter the kingdom unless he was born again. And then we have this woman, this woman at the well. She would be the opposite of Nicodemus. And we're going to learn more about her. We're going to learn more about her character. You've probably read so much about this, so you probably know this well. But what we see is, that we need to be filled with something. We are hungering and thirsting for something. An atheist person pursues anything that will fill or quench their thirst, like a desperate person. Uh, Terry brought up in our sermon, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after God. Our soul longs for something. And so a one who is born again has a soul that is capable of bearing the image of God more fully and can be filled with nothing else but God. Nothing but God can fill a soul that is being renewed into the image of God. So there's two types of folks. We know that there are believers and unbelievers, right? Those who are in Christ and those who are out of Christ. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Those in Adam and those in Christ. But when you are in Christ... There is this process called sanctification, becoming more holy. You're being renewed into the image of the Lord. And so there, there may be lingering thirsts 
that you have. There may be things that you have thirsted for in the past that you continue to thirst for that are not going to fill you. And what God does is he makes it much more evident in your life by trials and troubles and continued hardships to show you that this is not going to satisfy you. And so what we see is as a Christian, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to thirst for things and not get them. Um, or you may be given over to them and not be satisfied. And so becoming a Christian does not eliminate our desires, but ultimately it redirects them. So just because you became a Christian doesn't mean you still don't have some of those old, as the old English would say, lusts desires, things that you wish you could continue in. But being a Christian, being born again, means that our ultimately our desires are reoriented. Uh, they are reordered, not disordered. And so this is a, an important concept that we have to understand as we approach this text. Because Jesus is the living water, and he quenches our thirst in three ways. Through his lived experience, through a gift to the unworthy, and through becoming a spring of living water inside of us. And you will have this on the back of your bulletin. If you're a note taker, you can follow along. There are the points there for you. And so the first thing we see is that it is through his lived experience. Verses 1 through 8 really bring out the humanity of Jesus Christ. It's so fascinating how John, talking about Jesus is God, very God, truly God, the God of all creation, will then go and show us the humanity of Jesus. This is so fascinating that someone who has a high Christology and says, this is Jesus, he is God, will then go and show us that Jesus gets tired. Look at this. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, baptizing um, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, this is an important point to uh, consider do you think that Judas baptized anybody? If Judas bat, would you want to be a bat, somebody that was baptized by Judas later on? Just an interesting thought. We don't know the answer to that. Uh, just a question I had in my mind. But think about this: I was baptized by Jesus. Look how holy and perfect I am. We have the same hap same thing happening in the Corinthians, right? I was baptized by Apollos, or I was baptized by this guy, or I was baptized by Paul, and they would say that's who we followed. Jesus didn't do any baptizing. He made his disciples do the baptizing. He knows human flesh and human pride. And so the disciples were baptizing. So he left Judah or Judea sorry, and went again towards Galilee. He went to Galilee. So if you think about this, he was in, in Judea. He had a confrontation with the Pharisees. And then he said, you know what? My time is not yet. And so let me go through this area. And so he goes through Samaria. He didn't have to. He could have taken alternate routes. There's other ways. But it says here that he had to travel through Samaria. The grammar in the Greek brings it out even more. It actually says it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. And you may have that in your translation. It was necessary for him to go through Samaria. Why was it necessary? Well, he was on a mission. He had an appointment from God. Just as, as uh, Gary talked about in our communion service, God sent the Son. The Son obeyed willingly 
to follow through with what God told him to do. So he goes through Samaria, and he goes to this place called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus. Uh, I'm not going to get to what Jesus what happened with Jesus yet. So here's the deal. I love geography. I was a scout in the army, so I really am fascinated by maps. But let me tell you, we could go down a rabbit hole and miss the whole point of this service if we spent all of our time. So here's the deal. You can Google this. Where is Sychar? Where is Samaria? You can look in a study Bible or a good commentary, and you can learn more about this history, okay? Or you can follow your chain reference Bibles and go back and read in Genesis where this well came from and all the information. Just know that this land of Samaria used to belong or was part of Israel, part of the Jews. And when the Assyrians took it over, they exiled the Israelites, they exiled a bunch of people, and they brought in foreigners and had them intermarry with the people of the land. So we have mixed race, if you want to use that term, I don't like it, but that's what we're going to use, mixed race people living now in Samaria in the middle of what Israel is. So in many ways, the Samaritans were considered outcasts. Not only that, they did some nasty things, and the Israelites did some nasty things back and forth. The Samaritans rejected everything but the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. That's what they believed in, so they, they had a messianic understanding, but they did not like the temple in Jerusalem. They did not worship at that temple. They had their own place of worship, this mountain, and we'll see that next week. So think about that. So he has going through this area that is not probably very nice to the Jewish people. Um, and the Jews are not nice to them. They, they're kind of enemies. Uh, they are not friends with one another. So Jesus goes here in obedience to God. We saw that in verse 4. And he had a divine appointment. Verse 6 says, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. So the heat of the day, it's, it's warmer. We all know what it's like to be in the desert, in the heat, around noon. And Jesus is worn out. Think about that for a minute. Jesus identifies with our humanity. He did not have a special superpower to keep from getting tired. Verse 8 or verse 7 says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone to Subway had gone into town to buy some food, right? His disciples went into town to get sandwiches. So he is by himself, sitting by this well, on, in the heat of the day. He is thirsty. He has nothing with which to draw water, physical water, and so he is worn out. Which is interesting, because when I'm tired, I typically don't try to have eschatological conversations, end-time conversations, or evangelistic conversations, right? I try not to share the gospel when I'm tired and cranky. That's just my modus operandi because it might not come out properly. But Jesus, we don't see that in him. So what I want us to focus on is that Jesus is a human being. He's in human form. He has the tiredness. His flesh got tired. He was thirsty. He was hungry. So we want to consider the glorious truth of Jesus. He experienced the whole human experience. Which reminds us, which Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, reminds us that he is our great high priest who is able to, what does it say? Sympathize. Or 
if you take the Greek and break it apart like you're not supposed to do in school, he is able to co-suffer. He has suffered the same way we have. He is able to sympathize with us because he has been tested in every way that we have. So think about that. Jesus has human flesh. He gets tired. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. Now we call that hangry, right? That's our, our definition. Now I'm not saying that Jesus got angry because he was uncomfortable, but that he faced the same things that we human beings face when our bodies break down and get weary. So how does that, how can we apply this? Because we don't want to just read about it and not do anything about it. We want to apply it to our lives. So for me, when I pray, I know that Jesus understands that I'm tired. When I am weary, when my children do the same doggone thing every single time, when they uh, disobey or they fight, and I'm tired, I've had a long day, and I know that, you know what? Christ also understands when I pray, when I cry out to Him, when I pray. Wasn't it interesting in Mark where Gary read that Jesus was depressed unto death, it said? That's, that's pretty depressed. That's pretty depressed. So Jesus experienced the highs and the lows of human emotions. Worn out, tired. So when we pray, when we are tempted to sin, we can recognize that Jesus knew what tiredness was. Doesn't that quench your thirst just a little bit? Right, because we, we, we want someone that understands what we're going through. When I'm suffering, sometimes I turn to people that I know understand what I'm going through. And this is what Jesus does. He understands. God became man. No other religion can, can say this. No other religion on earth can, can quench our thirst in this way. So why do we go to anyone else to quench our thirst? So we see the giver of living water is asking for physical water. He asked the lady for water, and look at who he asked it from. A Samaritan woman. And this is where we get to our second point. It is through, God quenches our thirst through the gift to an unworthy person. No one is worthy of the living water. There's no one that has earned it. That's what we saw with Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus did everything right. He was a Jew of Jews. He he fell into the best, the most conservative party of the Pharisees. He was, in fact, a uh, chief on one of the on the councils, and we saw a little bit about his character. And so, this Nicodemus doesn't deserve the living water, but neither does the Samaritan woman. So, I love how John does this. He starts with Nicodemus, religious, smart, cream of the crop. Then he talks about John, the outcast prophet. John the baptizer, in the wilderness, wearing his rough clothing, eating locusts and honey. And then he comes to this woman. So John has really masterfully made this narrative so that we can understand who Jesus was in comparison to these different types of people. I think people that we can associate with in our own minds and say, man, I'm a lot like Nicodemus, or I'm a lot like John the Baptist, or I'm a lot like... Uh, this woman at the well. I think most of us identify with the woman at the well, but we'll get there. John shows us how Jesus evangelized each type of person. So this is the hard part about this passage. There's so much here. We could talk about how to do evangelism. We see Jesus as a counselor counseling this woman. We see um, a 
intersectionality of all these different factors. You could almost say that Jesus identifies where she is and then moves forward. So there's so much here, right? Not only that, we talk about worshiping in spirit and truth. So I could spend the rest of my, my life preaching from just this passage because there's so much here. So we can't touch everything perfectly. So here's what we're going to do. Just know that Jesus is evangelizing each of these different people by addressing misconceptions that they have of God. And that's important. So not only does he evangelize each type of person, but he came for both types of people. What's interesting to me is that Jesus was not just here for Nicodemus. He came for all types of folks, even the Samaritans. So we don't know her whole background yet. We will as we continue the conversation. But we do notice a few things. So I want to first point out that she's a Samaritan. She's a mix of Assyrian and Jewish rate um, intermingling, which means that the Assyrians had their own gods, their own pagans, their own, or their own idols. They brought their own idols. They were a type of pagan to the Jews. And so they brought that with them intermarrying. So if we were to label her using the lenses of our culture, we would say, man, she is oppressed. Not only is she oppressed because of her, uh, her lineage, her background, but she's oppressed because she's a woman. She is a woman. So she's not a high member of society. Why would she come and get water in the middle of the day? Most women would go early in the morning and late in the evening. She goes in the middle of the day because there's going to be no one else there. She is avoiding people. She is ashamed of her life. She's ashamed of what she has done and what has been done to her. So she has shame. She is an outcast. So if we were to use the lens of our culture and say, man, if anybody needs compassion, it should be this woman. It should be this woman who is an outcast, who has multiple husbands, as we see down the road. Uh, she is morally not Nicodemus. Let's just compare the two. She is not Nicodemus, right? The leader of the Sanhedrins. So her conversation is really kind of odd, too. Have you, let's, let's read how she talks. So Jesus says, give me a drink, which kind of sounds a little abrupt. And uh, he says, give me a drink, because his disciples have gone in to buy food. Verse 9. She goes, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She's like, this, this is breaking some cultural norms here. We don't talk to each other. We are not allowed to speak. Why are you talking to me? You are not following the Billy Graham rule of being alone with a woman. There is a, 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 a restriction between the two of us. Why are you asking me for water? And then we see a little parenthesis by John. It says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Which makes me think that John, in his, as he's writing this, is telling the Gentile audience that he's writing to, just so you know, there's a reason why this is weird. It's because men and women, Jew and Samaritan, do not intermingle like this. And then Jesus answers her and he says, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. And of course, Jesus begins to unpack what is this gift of God. Now listen to this language. So to be born again, or as we talked about, to be born from above, was a gift of God. 
In the same way, he is using the same language. It is a gift. This living water is a gift. So he used the language for Nicodemus to try to get him to understand. And then he uses the same idea, but with different language for this woman. So he, he identifies what we're talking about, and then he uses it to have this conversation. Which is kind of interesting that she's hostile towards him, and he's tired and thirsty. And instead of just saying, woman, just give me a drink. Stop fighting with me. Just, can I just have some water? Instead of saying that, he starts to have a theological conversation with her. And says, you know what? There's a gift of God, and it is living water. Now, obviously, we notice the parallels with Nicodemus, because look what she says in verse 11. She says, sir, or sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? Now, I, I personally translate this super sarcastic, because that just sounds right to me. But where do you, you don't even have a bucket. You're telling me, you're gonna, look at my, I got a bucket, I got water, I can go get the water. You don't have anything. You're sitting here all by yourself. Why are you saying you're going to give me water? What is, what is she doing? Do you notice the parallel between her and Nicodemus? Nicodemus says, that's funny. You can't get back in your mom's womb and get born again. How is that possible? So they're looking through these physical lenses. They're looking through the physical eyesight they're listening with physical ears they're looking from things that they understand and remember what john the baptist says right in between these two stories what comes from above that jesus speaks the words that come from above and so they're not getting it because they haven't been born again they have not been made alive in christ yet and so we have this physical parallel but you know what she's a smart woman this woman is not dumb look at verse 12 you aren't greater than our father Jacob. So she's not just physical, but she thinks back to the past. So she knows that Jesus is talking about something more than physical water. Right? She's not, she's not unintelligent. She says this. She says, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Remember, John's point is that we would see Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. Remember, we talked about chapter 20, where John gives us the purpose of the book of John. And so, we who know what this story is about, when she says, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? What does our heart want to say? Yes, he is so much greater. He is the greatest thing. He is better than Jacob. He is much more powerful than Jacob. He is everything that Jacob wasn't. Jacob was conniving and wicked and evil. And we have Jesus, who's going to give this living water. The trickster Jacob versus Jesus. So Jesus explains salvation to this woman. He says it's a gift. It's a gift that's it's something that you, you, earn, you don't earn or deserve. It's a given gift from God. It doesn't matter how good you are. Otherwise, Nicodemus would not have needed to be born again. It doesn't matter how bad you are. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to receive this gift and that he is offering to this woman, though she doesn't quite get what's going on yet. 
So he's offering her this, this living water, which is an interesting term, right? Living water versus well water. Uh, we're on a well, and it's not bad. It's good water. But how much nicer is a spring that comes straight from the mountain, right? You never see people advertise best well water in five counties. No, it's always spring water from some mountain in Alaska or some mountain in Holland, which really means they just turn on the tap. And anyways, we know. But the advertisement is living water, moving water, not stagnant water. And so he's using even terms of greater and lesser than here in his conversation. So it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how bad you are. You all must be born again. We all must have this living water, this free gift. And so let's just take a quick moment to think about this. How does our thirst get quenched? How does our thirst get quenched? Since we all long for something, every human being was created to thirst. We see that from the very beginning. We all desire something. We all try to fill that desire with various activities and things. Next week, I may or may not have a pie chart of how we spend our time. And uh, if you think about that, that's pretty scary. How often, how much time do we spend in church worship? One hour a day or one hour a week, 52 weeks, versus how often we watch Netflix? Next thing you know, everybody's feeling guilty. Okay, we all feel guilty. We fill our minds with these things, with other things. We try to fulfill our desires, right? Why do people love the American dream? Because it speaks to our carnal desires, our fleshly desires. It means that we want a new house because that's how we've been raised. Or we want the perfect picture-perfect marriage with all the kids in the photo for every Christmas card. And as you know, our family, we give you a Christmas card like three months after Christmas. right? So we all know we fail to reach these desires. Yet something greater, a gift that can quench your thirst. Do you want that? Do you want the gift that can quench your thirst? Because the world wants to offer you solutions. Um, we had a biblical counseling training session last uh, yesterday here at the church. We had 14 people, and the guy said that they have 22 churches that were represented going and getting this training. And one of the things he was trying to point out to us is that the world is hungry and thirsty for something to quench their thirst. And the reality is, psychology is more than happy to fill that void and say, well, it's your felt needs. You're not getting the love cup filled up or whatever it is. And as, if you were an atheist, it would make sense. Of course it's biological. There's, it's, it has to be. There's nothing, no other expl explanation. I'm, I'm um, not normal. The reality is we are normal. We all have desires that are not being filled by the one thing we were created to fill. So if I'm an atheist, I have to use any excuse to get away from God. And that's what we see in a lot of our world in, when we watch TV and our commercials. And I've said this a million times. You guys are probably tired of hearing this, but I hate commercials. Because the commercials don't just tell you about a product. They're not trying to sell you something good. They're trying to make you hate what you already have, so you buy their product. Right, So they'll say, man, remember that generic Windex that you have sitting underneath your sink? You need Windex 5.0 because look at the difference. That stuff that you have, that's not good enough. You need this. Or, of course, we love our technology, don't we? 
we need the iPhone 45 or whatever's next, right? So, man, that iPhone that you have, that camera's okay, but you need this better camera. Oh, yeah, this one's less breakable, or this one has better sound, and your sound is just not so good. Man, we can't even tell the difference. The technology is so advanced, I can't tell the difference between iPhone 10 years ago versus iPhone this year, right? They, they sound the same to me, but, they're, but we need the better ones. You, you need the pro version. You're a professional. Okay, so they, they work to get us to want these other desires, and so we never quench our thirst. And through the third way that Jesus quenches our thirst is through becoming a spring of living water inside of us. This is important, and this is where we're going to camp out for the next 10 minutes. This is where we're going to spend our time. Jesus points out that all earthly drinks will make us thirsty again. Verse 13, Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. It's a guarantee. You drink this water this morning, you're going to be thirsty tonight. You drink from the well today, you'll be thirsty tomorrow. There's a rule of three, right? You can go three, um, I think it's like three days without, or three hours with water when you're in a survival context, three days without food, or three, three days without sleep, and three uh, weeks without food, or something like that. But there's, it's a rule of three. I obviously don't need to be surviving in the wilderness until I brush up on my survival skills. But it's a rule of three, but we can only survive without water for so long. It's the thing that we need the most, um, and we're made up of so much water. So water is important. So if we think about the stuff that makes human beings happy, that we search for, that we desire, it's going to leave me thirsty. Think about money. There's a lot of thirsty rich people, aren't there, that want more money, that want bigger houses, that want more cars want more. They can never get enough. They continue to thirst. Or you think about those who are um, addicted to something like sex. They want more. They never get enough. It's, they're never satisfied. Same thing with drugs and alcohol. You can never drink enough. Fame. The famous people are all miserable. They are unhappy because they can never get enough. You name it. All of it fades and will never be enough. I watched a, a TV show a long, long time ago. It was a movie, and I'm, you'll probably try to figure it out, and we're going to derail the whole sermon as we think about what the title of it was. But these guys, they crashed. I think it was a shipwreck, and they're all hanging out around these inflatables, and they've been at, at sea for maybe about a couple days, and they're so thirsty. They are parched. They don't have any water, and one of the guys swims down as deep as he can, and then he comes back up and says, I found sweet water at the very bottom. You have to just have to swim far enough down in the ocean, right? Just obviously not true. You don't have, but in my, my child mind, as I watched it, I was like, that's interesting. So I'm like over here trying to figure it out on dial-up internet, Googling, can you, is there water? But what was happening was they were so thirsty by drinking the water underneath, they, for some reason, their mind was telling them, this is what you need. And what happens when you drink salt water? You just keep getting thirsty. You're never going to be quenched. But they were drinking and drinking and drinking because they were so thirsty and never quenched their thirst. And eventually they died because they're drinking on this water that's never going to satisfy. And I think that's something that we as human beings continue to do. We drink the salt water of the world. We drink from the wells and the cisterns that we have dug 
that are full of salt. And we begin to get miserable. Verse 14, then Jesus offers something greater. He says, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Now, to understand what he's talking about here means we have to know the rest of John. Isn't that kind of tricky? John 7, 37 through 39, Jesus says this, On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, I want to point out really quick, Isaiah 55 uses the same exact language. Why do you spend your money on things that won't fulfill you? Okay, same thing about being thirsty. And it says, The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. So John, or Jesus is explaining what he's talking about in chapter 7, but we don't know that yet. And he says this, so he says, will flow deep from within me, in him. He said this about the Spirit. Now, I know as Baptists, we get a little uncomfortable when we talk, start talking about the Holy Spirit. Sometimes, some Baptists, not you guys. Those who believe in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus is talking about a special manifestation of the Spirit within those who believe in him. This is important. So what he's telling this woman, he hasn't revealed, he didn't even reveal this to Nicodemus yet. He did talk about the Spirit, which is interesting that John has begun to reveal the Spirit in this passage. But the gift of God becomes a well of water springing up inside. Would you stop being thirsty? Then you need the Spirit of God giving a fountain of living water inside of you. This is, this is it, guys. This is important. This is what quenches our thirst. It's a perpetual fountain. He says eternal inside of us. How about that for quenching our thirst? You don't have to go and be embarrassed by going to the well to get this living water. You don't have to scratch your back with uh, shards of glass to to make penance for your behavior. You don't have to say 15 Hail Marys. You go to living water. By believing in Jesus Christ, you get the Spirit. This just blows my mind as I study this passage. And I would miss it if I was rushing through in my Bible reading plan just trying to get this chapter checked off. Because this is important. So what do we see here? If you want full contentment, you need to find it in Jesus Christ. That's what we're seeing here. Full contentment is found in Jesus Christ. He uses the, the language of water because water cleanses and it quenches. He's talking about holiness here. He's talking about being made clean. True faith cleanses the corruption of the soul and the soul that is polluted. Uh, an unclean heart before the cleansing of all of our actions, um, before this cleansing, all of our actions are corrupted. Um, and so this fountain of living water cleanses us at the source. Not just our actions, not just our behaviors, but even our desires are transformed. That's why this language of new birth is so good. True faith quenches. God has created us with an appetite. 
He has given us a hunger, a, a desire for to go to the banquet. And that banquet spread is in Jesus Christ, the body and the blood of Christ that we remember. So if you think about human nature, what do human beings long for? You know, it's not really about money. It's not really about fame. It's something deeper. They long for a higher good. If you talk to a rich person, if they're honest, they're not going to say it's just about money, right? Money is a means to an end for them. It is the fruit of a deeper need. And then we see that about everything with happiness and security, um, comfort. All these things are really fruits. There is an idol that we have erected, and it says, if only I was thought of by other people this way, then I will get this, or I will be happy. So we all desire happiness. We all long for joy. And um, in the counseling training yesterday, they talked about joy is always vertical in the, uh, in the Bible. It's between us and God. Joy comes from the Lord. And so we find our joy in the Lord. So we could see that human beings were created to aim at something, to chase after something. Right, we all desire something, um, and when we don't get our desires, what happens? We get sad, we get depressed, we get angry. We're willing to fight and hurt and bite to get it. The Bible calls those things idols. They say that is your functional god. And many of us as Christians, we have functional gods. We we have the the god that we want people to respect us, and that's a good thing. In our marriage, if my functional god was um, my comfort, how do you think I would treat my wife? I would not be a serving husband. I would be a commanding tyrant. We know this. I think you guys get the picture. So sin has not destroyed our desires. Our desires are not destroyed. It has merely diverted them to something other than God. That's what sin has done. Sin has diverted our desires. It hasn't changed our desires. It has diverted them to something other than God. True faith, then, will center us on the one true object of our worship. It quenches the burning thirst of our affections. Our desires, our greatest happiness, is found in God alone. God himself is called a living fountain, a fountain of living waters. In Jeremiah 2.13, it says, For my people have committed a double evil. So when we sin, we don't commit one evil, we commit two. Think about this. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. So when we sin, what are we doing? We are choosing something other than God. When I say, you know what? My wife doesn't make me happy. I'm going to go look at pornography. I have chosen something other than my wife. But not only that, it says here, they have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and then dug for themselves cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. So not only have I left my wife, which is one evil, the second evil is then I'm trying to fill myself up with something that will never satisfy. So when we sin, that's what we're doing. When we pursue alcohol to make us happy, we are abandoning God and we are taking on this thing that's going to make us miserable. But that's what our mind wants to do. We have an idolatry problem. John Calvin says that our hearts are idol-making factories, right? We make factories of idols in our heart. And this is a common thing even for Christians, First John, uh, John, at the very end of First John, it says, keep yourselves from idols. It ends abruptly. That's his ending. Keep yourself from idols. He's talking to people who don't have a ton of idols. We have idols in our society today, don't we? So 
sometimes they come in the shape of an apple. Jeremiah 17, 13 says, Lord, the hope of Israel, all, you, all who abandon you will be put to shame. When you abandon the living God, you will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt, for they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. Jesus is not coming up with a new category to understand himself. He is using an old category for himself. And then in verse 15, the woman says, man, that sounds pretty good. Let me get some of that. Verse 15, sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water because she's ashamed, right? We know that she has this shame. So what I want us to end this week with is Jesus is the living water. He quenches our thirst in three ways, through his humanity, through his lived experience, through a gift, through the gift of himself, the atonement. He takes on all of our sins so that we don't have to be disordered in our desire. And then, of course, through becoming a spring of living water inside of us. So I, wanna, I wonder, if you have this living water inside of you, is the spirit of the living God satisfying your thirst? As the deer pants for the water, does your soul pant after God? Are you going to the fountain of God to satisfy you, or are you pursuing your own substitutes? One of the ways I illustrate this is, what is the first thing that I grab when I wake up in the morning? Is it my phone so that I can check, check Facebook or Twitter or social media? Or is it the word of the living God? Do I say prayers first or do I groan first? When I wake up and my everything aches, because I, I know I'm not as old as some, but I have body aches. My body does ache. And I wake up and I groan and I'm like, oh, not another day. Lord, I have to talk to Gary Redding today, and he's mad at me. No, I'm just kidding. You're not mad at me. But I wake up, and I have things i got to deal with. Do I pray to the living God, or do I grumble and honestly worship something besides the Lord? So let me give you my riddle. A, a contented man is the most dissatisfied man that lives in the world. Does that make sense now? Does anyone think it doesn't make sense yet? We are not satisfied. We are content because we are unsatisfied. Because we find that we pursue the living God, the fountain of living water. We are continually thirsting after righteousness. And that righteousness bubbles up inside of us, creating more, which we can go to continually. We can thirst after the living God. We are unsatisfied with this world, and we are satisfied in the Lord. We are unsatisfied with the things around us, but we are content in God. And I want to make sure that I don't plagiarize that saying. It comes from Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. So just so you know, I didn't make that up. I'm not that smart. So the question that we have is, are you pursuing the living waters? Next week, we're going to see that those who worship, worship in spirit and truth. That's how we pursue the living waters. You have to come back next week, though, to learn how to do that. Or you could just read ahead. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be a church that offers this living water to those around us. That when we go to the barber shop and the barber is complaining about his life is a mess, he doesn't have enough money to pay this, or he's struggling with uh, despair, that we would say, you know, those are very hard things. 
What are you pursuing? What are you seeking after? Who are you worshiping? Do you worship at the God of this world or do you worship the living God, the fountain of living water? Lord, I pray that we would be a people that would share the gospel to this community and beyond. Lord, that we would preach this gospel to ourselves, that we do not have to live in shame for being an outcast, but that we have the living God, that we can go to him through prayer, that we have a God who understands what we have gone through. Father, I'm so humbled to be able to understand and study these things. Lord, I know that there are people out there who don't have this information. And I pray that they would grow and they would know you through our people, that our people would reach those around them and see a woman sitting at a well and go and see her, that they would see someone like a Nicodemus who looks good on the outside but internally is not born again, is dead inside, and that they would share the good news of Christ. Lord, help us to be a people who are gospelers, who gossip about the gospel. We ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ, our one sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.